As Greg Foster writes um, in his comprehensive work on the subject, which by the way, if you're looking to read about what, what is it that the earliest founders of, of uh, the earliest founders of the United States actually believed about Christianity, I encourage you to read Greg Foster. He's written probably the most authoritative and comprehensive historical work on the subject, the religious beliefs of America's founders. And he argues, I think correctly, that Jefferson and most of the others, uh, instead of being Christian or deistic, uh, he, he calls them theistic rationalists. And he describes theistic rationalism as a kind of hybrid belief system that combined the elements of natural religion, Protestantism, and uh, reason. And reason is sort of a decisive element, and what he means by that is they believe that they could stand over the biblical text as judge of it. Okay, so how did this work itself out? Well, the way this would work itself out with someone like Thomas Jefferson is that he'd come to the Bible. Unlike deism, he'd see the possibility for God's revelation to be present there. You know, Jefferson claimed routinely to be devoted to the teachings of Jesus, so he would claim that identity uh, pretty routinely. But he, he would read certain parts of the Bible and conclude on the basis, again, of his reason, standing as judge over the text, that certain parts just couldn't be true or accurate. When Jefferson said that he didn't agree with how uh, the life of Jesus was interpreted, the interpreters he's referring to, when you look at those texts, are actually Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's not just talking about Bible commentators. He's saying that he distrusts the very foundation documents of Christianity itself. So Jefferson would come to the life and ministry of Jesus, and he would find um, the, the, the miracles of Jesus' ministry absolutely absurd, right? So it's difficult because at the center of Christianity is actually a miracle, the central miracle that the Apostle Paul says. If that didn't happen, we all probably shouldn't even be here. There's no point to this time together. We're not really doing literally anything else other than gathering together this morning. He found, he found those um, miracle accounts absurd. It's not the most absurd thing for Jefferson. He also found the teachings on how Satan, you know, how Jesus saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, the things that, that he, he would argue made Jesus sound like a crazy person. He thought those things were absurd. Um, that Jesus couldn't have possibly said that because he would have been mentally ill. Uh, but that's not where he uh, found most absurdity. Actually, he especially found Jesus' words on judgment absurd and troubled. He had no use for the idea of original sin or the judgment facing mankind. He had no use for Jesus as Savior, especially not for him. And so Jefferson set out, as he put it, so this is the way he phrased it, he set out to rescue Jesus from the Gospels. To set the true teachings of Jesus free from the Gospels so that we wouldn't be burdened with these harsh words about mankind facing judgment apart from Christ's saving work. And so, you know, this is the part of the story that I've alluded to briefly before. But it, um, Jefferson took, took out this sharp instrument one day, most likely a pen knife, and he essentially cut out the portions from his Bible that he found reasonable, pasted them together in a book that would be published as the Jefferson Bible, and as he did it, he would also cut out the sections that he deemed absurd, ridiculous, and toss them in the trash. Cut out the reasonable part, paste it in. Cut out the absurd parts, throw them in the trash. When it was finished, he had roughly 86 pages of the Jefferson Bible. He wasn't the first to go about it 
this way. Like I said earlier, you know, this concept is biblical. That might be a provocative statement. Okay, we turn to Jeremiah chapter 36. And the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Jeremiah, and the primary message the Lord has for the people of God, for his people in Jeremiah 36, is judgment. It's a warning of judgment. And the Lord commands Jeremiah to write this warning down on a scroll, to have it read. He says, it may be, this is what the Lord says to Jeremiah, he says, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So Jeremiah does as the Lord instructs. He calls, calls on this guy Baruch to write down the scroll, on the scroll as Jeremiah dictates these words from the Lord. The Lord spoke to him about judgment. And he orders Baruch to go and to read this scroll to the people. And he essentially repeats uh, what the Lord said. He says um, to Baruch, it may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For, the, for great is the anger and wrath of the Lord pronounced against this people. And so Baruch does what Jeremiah instructs. He goes and reads the scroll to the people, but um, King Jehoiakim gets wind of it from his advisors, who, you know, his advisors really do, I think, in Jeremiah 36, they appear shaken by these words of judgment. So they eventually take the scroll into Jehoiakim, and um, they read it to him. They, they tell Baruch, Go hide. We'll take the scroll to Jehoiakim and read it. He needs to hear these words. And as one of the king's servants would read three or four columns on the scroll at a time, the king would cut that section off with a knife and throw it into the fire pot. There's this coal during this time of year, cold. They're sort of gathered around a fire pot in the palace. And the servant would read another three or four columns. Jehoiakim take his knife, cut it off, throw it in the fire pot until... The entire scroll is consumed in fire. You know, like, like Jefferson, Jehoiakim had no particular use for the idea of judgment against him or the people or the nations. He had no perceived need of the Lord as Savior. From his vantage point, he was strong. It's absurd to think that this crazy prophet riding on scrolls in the Judean wilderness could possibly upend his rule. And so, like Jefferson, he decided that he could stand as judge over the written word of God. And in our text this morning, we have a similar warning to God's people. Because again, we find a scroll. So here in the text, we find a scroll. And again, on that scroll, we see a message that's difficult for people to hear that cuts against our sensibilities. And the question from the text essentially is, what are the people going to do about it? Even as we hear what are we going to do about it? Will we hear and respond to the message, or will we dismiss it and do as we please? Will the people of God hear it and respond, or dismiss it, cut it to shreds, do as they please? And so um, we see all this happening in three sections in the text. We see the vision, the message, and the call. The vision, the message, the call is the first half of the vision, verses 1 and 2. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits. It's width 10 cubits. So here we see the sixth of these eight visions that we're making our way through at the beginning part of Zechariah. Just by way of reminder, visions one through three 
focused on God's returning to Jerusalem to dwell among his people again. So um, Zechariah is really predicated on this idea that the people of God are called to repent of their sin, to turn toward their sin, turn away from their sin, and turn toward God. Right? But what we see in these first three visions is essentially that we cannot turn toward God without him first turning toward us in mercy. Right? So we talked about how every single time the mercies of God always, always, always precede the activities of repentance. We're unable to move toward God unless he first moves toward us, right? So, um, visions 1 through 3, God returning to Jerusalem to dwell among his people, people again. Visions 4 and 5 then focused on the cleansing and restoration of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, a big thanks to Paul for preaching that fifth vision last week. And all of these visions have this future sense in which we realize that the way that God's people have understood the rebuilding of the temple and God dwelling among them is uh, far too small. They don't understand where it's headed, you know. And so here in verses 6 and 7, we get some of the outworking of that. The outworking of the Lord's return to his people. What will it look like when the Lord returns? And it's along these lines we remember, you know. As Paul reminded us last week, all these visions have to do with repentance. Let's keep it in that context, right? They answer the question, so when the Lord returns, like, what does it look like for the people to turn to God? What does it look like for them to turn away from sin? And this morning's vision takes it a step further and asks, what does it look like if you don't? It's very serious. It's very sober. What does it look like if instead of receiving God's word and repenting, you reject God's word and cut it to so again, Zechariah lifts his eyes in the text, transitional statement, and behold, so he gets our attention on the primary focal point of the vision, a flying scroll. A flying scroll, what is that? Well, uh, when we see a scroll any time in, in the Old Testament, it's always referring to the written word of God. You know, it either symbolizes the written word, or it's actually expressing the content of the written word. So like a scroll of judgment. That Jehoiakim dislikes and decides to cut to pieces. That scroll contains the written word of God expressed to Jeremiah, proclaimed then to the people. Right? In Ezekiel, we talked about this when we preached through Revelation. Not sure if you remember, but the prophets commanded to eat a scroll that has writing on the front and the back from the Lord to the nations. And Ezekiel eats it, and surprisingly, he finds it sweet as honey. The symbolism here again equating the scroll with the written and proclaimed word of God. That there's grace and mercy extended in this written word because like, it reveals God to us. It reveals his heart for his people. Um, it centers us in on this thing that he's about to do. This thing that he's done for us in Christ. In Psalm chapter 40, David writes this. He says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book that is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So David, referring to this um, statement that the Lord makes of his coming, that that's the centerpiece of the scroll of the book. The scroll of the book that he's talking about is the law of the Lord. It's a reference to God's written word in which David can delight because God himself is at the center of it. Right? So we see example after example of the scroll either directly containing in the history of Israel or symbolizing in various images God's written word to his people. Here in our vision, Zechariah has this exchange. It's exchanging either the interpreting angel or the angel of the Lord, in which, you know, Zechariah now is asked, What do you see? 
So if you remember, in all these other visions where there's an inquiry made about the vision itself, it's usually Zechariah asking the angel, right? It says, what are these? My Lord, what are these, right? But here the angel is the first to speak. Maybe there's a moment of silence. I don't know, but he says to Zechariah, what do you see? Almost as if to make sure that Zechariah understands what's happening in front of him at this moment. And so he answers that he sees a flying scroll, but the context that he gives is that, yeah, I see a flying scroll, but it's absolutely huge. It's massive. You know, a, a cubit is most likely 17 to 19 inches long, depending on your reference point. So um, this flying scroll is something like 15 feet wide, 30 feet long. You know, it, it wasn't uncommon for scrolls to be that long. Like, scrolls in the Old Testament, they could get as long as 20 cubits long. Qumran scroll, like the Dead Sea scroll, the Isaiah scroll that we found in Qumran, that's like 25 feet long, to give you an idea. So these scrolls were certainly long, but the width and length together here make this like an extraordinarily massive scroll. It's flying. Why is it flying? Well, various commentators, I think, rightly pick up on different aspects of the flight here. Um, it's associated with quickness, swiftness, suddenness, omnipresence, like it's widespread. It's associated with imminence, the idea that it's coming upon us right now. I think that especially is important here because, listen, uh, maybe the most important aspect of this that I think is trying to be captured by this flying scroll is captured by a uh, commentator, Eugene Merrill. He puts it this way. He says, it diminishes human agency. No one is holding or reading or burning or eating this scroll. It does the work of God directly. Like, it's coming upon people and you know, they're not to contribute to it, right? Um, it isn't something that we contribute to in some sense, but rather we can only put up our empty hands and receive it. And so I think, like, when these two things are combined, the immense size of the scroll, the idea that the scroll itself is flying, what we see is something that really should feel imposing to us. Not only is it clear for, for everyone to see, on the promise, something this big, something moving this quickly, flying at us, not only is it clear for all to see, but it demands something of us. It demands to be read. It demands to be dealt with. And you know, I have to say, we have a default mode in, in the human heart. a human tendency to resist this. Right? We have a human tendency to resist the idea that, like, if God speaks, he speaks things that I, I don't like to hear. Right? We tend to think, we tend to try to convince ourselves that, no, if, if God exists, he only speaks loving almost like a grandpa version of God, you know. It only speaks kindness. There's never any judgment. And there's certainly never anything that cuts against my sensibilities or demands something uniquely from me. And so we just don't like it when something in the scriptures that come to us, when the word of the Lord comes to us, it's at odds with us. We already saw that in Jehoiakim, in Jeremiah 36. You know, I was talking to Mary Graham this morning. And uh, she was sharing a little bit about what she teaches at uh, Bible Study Fellowship this semester. And she brought up this verse. And I said, that's exactly what we're talking about, right? It demonstrates this tendency that we have to, to dislike hearing things that contradict us. Because um, the word of the Lord is, is coming to Ahab, this wicked king. Right? And Jehoshaphat, king of uh, Judah, is here with, with Ahab, the king of Israel. And... They're determining whether or not to go to battle with Syria, whether or not they're going to have victory. And so Jehoshaphat asks him, have you gathered 
um, the prophets together and inquire first for the word of the Lord. And he instructs uh, Ahab, king of Israel, Ahab, gathered the prophets together, about 400, said to them, Shall I go to that battle or shall I refrain? They said, Go up, for the Lord will give you the hand of the king. People who are not going to say anything negative. Jehoshaphat said, Wait, hang on, time out. Is there not here another prophet of the Lord to whom we may inquire? Listen to this. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Ahab says, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Jehoshaphat says, Let not the king say so. So they go into battle, they, they, they die, Ahab dies, they lose. Um, but the point here is, I hate him. Yeah, there is someone, there, there are words to be spoken from the Lord. But the one who carries that message, I hate him, for he only prophesies evil concerning him, not, not good. We don't want, our sensibilities are to reject things that cut against, our default is to reject things that we hear from the Lord that cut against our sensibilities. You know, Tim Keller talks about this in his book, The Reason for God. And if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic of Christianity and kind of have questions related to the Bible and religion, I really would love to direct you to Keller's Reason for God. But in this, he writes this. He says, if we let our unexamined beliefs undermine our confidence in the Bible, the cost may be greater than we think. And he explains, he says, if you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, right? If you say, I hate that. I hate the sections that are evil, or that speak um, badly, that speak judgment, that speak things that I don't like to hear. Right? So if you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, Keller asks, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. For example, if a wife is not allowed to contradict her husband, they won't have an intimate relationship. Remember the two movies, The Stepford Wives? The husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, decide to have their wives turned into robots who never cross the wills of their husbands. The Stepford wife was wonderfully compliant with her rights, but no one would describe such a marriage as intimate or personal. And that's the, that was the point of the film. No one would describe such a marriage as intimate or personal. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibilities or crosses your will? What happens if you only surround yourself, in other words, with the things that you like to do? What if you do as Jefferson or Jehoiakim or Ahab did? Right? He says, if you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a step for God. God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage will you know that you've gotten a hold of a real God and not a figment of your own imagination. So in a, he concludes this way, an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God, it's the precondition for it. You hear that? The idea of an authoritative Bible that can tell you things that you don't like to hear or that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you, that's not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. That's not something that gets in the way of having a personal relationship with God. It's the precondition if you're going to have a personal relationship with God. And that's what we find in Zechariah 5. It's this imposing word from the Lord that makes demands, a written word that makes demands of us that says things that we don't want to hear that maybe makes us want to take our knife out and cut three or four sections of a time off and throw it into the fire pot that makes us want to remove it from our Bibles entirely, and yet it 
he comes and speaks and makes demands. And it comes asking, as we'll see, what are you going to do about this? And this is actually why the scriptures talk about the ministry, when you say the ministry of preaching, the way that it does. This is why at Gospel Life Church, really at the center of our center of the way that we see our philosophy ministry, the way that we see discipleship happening in the life of the church, is to proclaim the word of God. This is why in the life of the local church, while we do have opportunities throughout the week in which we can certainly have conversation together and contribute in various ways, at the center of the church, we find a proclamation to which we do not contribute. This is why I can look in your liturgy packet um, at the way that we organize the liturgy each week. We call this section gospel proclaiming and hearing. This is something we receive. We receive it as the message from the Lord. We don't add anything to it. There's a sense in which it is imposing and demanding. It must be read and explained. We must respond to what it says, not be shaped into something less imposing and less demanding, which is, I think, our tendency. We want to reshape this so that it doesn't make demands. Let the weight of it fall upon us. And so here we see the vision, the written word, but what's the message to which we must respond? What is this, this heavy message? Verse 3, then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. The scroll, so the scroll has writing on both sides. On one side, everyone who steals shall be cleaned out. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what's on the other side writing on both sides. The message, in other words, that the scroll is said to represent is the curse that goes out over the whole land. And the idea of the curse is tied up with the idea of covenant. Like this, this word curse should really jump out, jump off the page at those who know their Old Testament, they know their Hebrew scriptures, in order to express how deep our need is for God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Because over and over again, you find failure of the people of God to obey His command failure of the people of God to keep him first above all things, putting themselves first instead, and therefore you see over and over again the deservingness of judgment. Look, look at Deuteronomy 28. This is, this is just one section of Deuteronomy that deals with this idea of curses rather than blessings in the case of disobedience. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Come upon, overtake, listen. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be in, the ba in your basket and your table. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock, cursed, Shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. This happens in a couple of different ways. In a more general sense, this idea of cursing is predominantly associated across the scriptures with our sin and our failure. And it's now said to go out over the face of the land and the earth. Why? Because again, the earth has heard the proclaimed word of God. The earth has had the opportunity to hear. God proclaimed his word, the message that came. The earth has collectively heard and rejected it, and now the earth is under the curse. That's one sense in which this is true. But in another, more specific sense here in Zechariah 5, there have been those in the land of Israel who have arrogantly dismissed 
God's written word, and perhaps even rely on a cheap version of his grace and mercy. Cutting his message to pieces really like externally hearing the words, but internally cutting them to pieces and doing the opposite of whatever it says in their own interactions in this unrepentant kind of way. I think that the idea or the mood in Israel is that you can continue sinning and God will never, he's not going to care. He will never find me out. Like I'm, I'm one of the people of God, one of his people. It reminds me of um, Bonhoeffer's chapter on costly grace versus cheap grace in his Cost of Discipleship, where he writes this, he says, Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toil of sin. He says, cheap grace, listen to this, remember this, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Baptism, or inclusion in the church, without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Chief grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. And yet this is the mindset of many in post-exilic Israel who claim to be a part of God's people while simultaneously living like the rest of the world. They claim the identity of Israel while joining with the nations in exploiting and mistreating the people of God. And they reject the written word. And the text gives two examples of that rejection. Stealing and swearing falsely. So if you look back at the second part of verse 3 again. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out, according to what is on one side. Everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out, according to what is on the other side. So these specific failures, stealing and swearing falsely, are listed for a couple of different reasons here. First, they're just obvious allusions back to God's word. Obvious allusions back to what God has already told his people. So um, the third and eighth commandment of the Ten Commandments, repeated in various ways throughout the Old Testament law. I don't think this is only pointing back to the Ten Commandments. I think rather these examples are, are used because um, they point Israel back to their failure generally to hold onto the whole law. You know? um, so I think one of the reasons this example is used is because they point God's people back to God's word, which we see throughout the Old Testament, pointing God's people back to God's word. But I think another reason um, that these specific sins are listed is because these are the specific ways that God's people were guilty uniquely in post-exilic Israel. So we, we see in the book of Haggai, who is Zechariah's contemporary, this is a time of socioeconomic advantage for God's people. And because there was a time of socioeconomic advantage, there were many, many people who were willing to take advantage of that for themselves. So like Haggai writes, And the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for, for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses while, the house, while this house, the house of the Lord, lives in ruins, right? There are those who temple work seems so counterintuitive to me that I'll just fall in line, I guess, with the rest of the world. There's a disillusionment and disappointment causes them to pursue the things of the world. And in doing that, there's been theft, there's been taking advantage of the other. He says, now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have so much to harvest and little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in the back withholds. Um, we see this alluded to even in Zechariah, as we'll see in a couple of ways in chapter 8, when he writes, Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For these things I hate, declares the Lord. The people have loved false oaths, 
They've taken advantage of one another's need. They've heard the Lord proclaim again and again throughout the scriptures that this is wicked, and they've disregarded God's written word. Therefore, they face judgment. You know, this phrase, shall be cleaned out. Tough to translate, you know, it carries a strong sense. It's got kind of fresh, threshing floor language. Um, the separation of the wheat from the chaff, right? So, um, but even more than that, it carries a strong sense of like being exposed. Uh, this, this is the way Anthony Pedersen translates this section of text, which admittedly is difficult. It's difficult to translate. He says, he translates it. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out of the face of the land, because everyone who steals has been wrongly acquitted from what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely has been wrongly acquitted from what's on the other side. There's an exposing going on. The idea of cleaned out suggests an exposing of false innocence in this context. And so I think the idea is, Russ, remember back to chapter 3, right? Where we have this beautiful picture of Joshua the high priest, who's also guilty of rejecting God's word, but who is then declared innocent by God, and contrast that with this group who reject God's word, and yet they attempt to declare themselves innocent. Remember, Bonhoeffer, chief grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. Here we see a people who's, who are trying to do just that. It suggests a false innocence here. The idea is that the scriptures don't teach a universalism in which everyone is declared innocent, regardless of where they attempt to find that innocence. It's only found in the word of God. Pedersen writes this, he says, whereas Zechariah 3 portrays God's forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, this vision declares that God does not leave the guilty unpunished. The statement implies a corruption of justice in the post-exilic community, where those who had committed these crimes had not yet received the penalty for their, that their crimes were due. The vision looks to God's coming to bring justice and set things right. He will not acquit the guilty. And so hear me now. The problem being addressed is that rather than being punished, those who rejected God's word and work as the means through which they might become innocent, they've, been, they've tried to declare themselves innocent. They've been falsely and the Lord tells us throughout the scriptures that in the case of those who reject him, where there is no repentance, in the case of those who just live right along with the rest of the world, um, he will by no means quit. He will by no means quit. And so the vision, of, the vision is um, God's word, written word to his people. The message is that God's judgment is just. That his judgment is just. And I think we have to acknowledge that, at least on the basis of this argument, because I think there are a few things that we can establish here. We can establish very, fairly easily our tendency to believe that if God speaks, it shouldn't impose anything on us. You know, it shouldn't oppose anything I think or do. It shouldn't make demands of me. It shouldn't cost me something. It shouldn't demand that I take up my cross and follow. I should just be able to live however I want. Right? So we have that tendency. We can also establish that our tendency to respond by cutting those things out that challenge us or ignoring them in a variety of ways. Cutting out the things that God says that we disagree with, or that our surrounding culture disagrees with, the things that cut against our cultural sen uh, sensibilities. We can also establish that, therefore, Malcolm Muggeridge is absolutely correct when he says, I bring this up a lot, but human depravity is at the same time the most empirically verifiable reality and the most intellectually resistant fact. Right? It's most empirically uh, 
verifiable reality. We can all see the reality of sin in this world, and yet, where do we, where do we resist it? Well, it has to do with me. Right? It has to do with us. We see our tendency to notice injustices all around us when we're the victim, when others are the perpetrators, when we very rarely notice our own injustices against God and others, our own need to repent, our own need for saving. And I think this is true of Christians throughout history, right? I think this is true of us throughout, people throughout history, that we see the sin of the world around us. We're outraged by others. We have a hard time seeing ourselves as having the same need. The difference now is that we have a place where we actually, like, log that, you know, where you can actually go back and see receipts of this happening, called social media, where I think, like, if you scroll back, and this is just a challenge to all of us, to, to go on our on social media platforms, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or any other um, social media uh, platform, and we scroll back and we think, you know, how often do I express my outrage in terms of others? How often do I express my outrage in terms of me? How often do I acknowledge my guilt? How often, how often really do I talk about how bad everyone else is to whatever the subject is? Um, how bad everyone else is? And actually that makes me look pretty good. And if we start seeing that happening most of the time, we just need to step away from that. Because that's this voice where it just predominantly throughout the week it shapes us. We're in this season, you know, in, in Western culture in which people are kind of, Christians are kind of removing themselves from the church. We have all this online content, we have online services, people are removing themselves from the church. So we're not being catechized weekly from within the people of God. We're not being shaped by the service, we're not being shaped by the word, we're not being shaped together. And instead, what happens? Uh, well, we're going to get shaped by something. Something's going to catechize us. And I can tell you now that for a lot of people, what's catechizing them is their media. It's their social media. It's the place where they spend most of the hours of the day. That has a shaping effect on the life of the church. And yet the written word, this is when we encounter God's written word, we come to see this message that judgment is just, right? That we've rejected him, that we've thought too little of our own uh, sin against God, and, and yet we're more than willing to point out the sins of others. So judgment is just. That's followed by the call. What are we going to do about it? Verse 4, I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief, and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Okay, so, so judgment will come. Judgment will come to the house of the thief, it will come to the house of those who swear falsely, who make false oaths, right? Um, all while claiming the identity of God's people. They swear by God's name. And yet here we have this call to repent. So what's the call? So, so the, the vision is the written word of God. Right? Um, so we see this vision coming in the written word of God. The message is judgment is just. And here's this call. Don't depart. Don't depart from the word of God. Don't depart from what it says. Don't depart from what he clearly speaks. And we see that spelled out for us in a clear contrast here in the text between two houses. This word house is actually used, it has been used throughout Zechariah up to this point to talk about the house of the Lord, the temple, the house of God. And yet here, we see it referring to the house of the thief and the house of the liar, the one who attempts to make God's word say what it doesn't actually say, to speak falsely in God's name. And the question is, 
This is the question that the text has for you. Whose house, to whose house do you actually belong? Whose house will you actually inhabit? Will you stand in the house of the Lord by the mercies of God, which leads to true and genuine repentance and life and hope? Or will you stand in your own house, the house of the guilty, which will be consumed in judgment? That's the message of the text. That's the question that's being held out to us. John Calvin writes this in his conclusion of these four verses. It's, it's heavy. Right? It's um, a heavier way of saying this. He says, by these words, Zechariah reminds us how terrible it is to fall into the hands of God. For he will punish the ungodly and the wicked until he reduces them to nothing. We need to know that this is the case for the ungodly and for the wicked. He will punish us until he, he will punish them until he reduces them to nothing. That, that statement, we, we might hear it and it cuts against our sensibilities. It's something that's difficult for us to hear. It's heavy. But it's not without hope. Right? It's reflective of God's justice and it's not in his goodness. But it's not without hope. The good news for disappointed people here in Zechariah 5 is twofold. First, the gospel is not cheap grace. Praise God that the gospel is not cheap grace. Praise God that it's life transforming. That it actually does shape the way we live. And so it's good news for those who've thrown themselves on God's mercy and therefore repented and turned to Him. For those people, it's good news that those who are daily persecuting and oppressing them will, will one day face judgment. Just as we saw in Revelation, there's a vindication theme in Zechariah. We're going to continue seeing that in Zechariah. There's this vindication theme. The true people of God will one day be vindicated because those who set themselves up as God's enemies and stood against everything the people of God say because they're, they're opening the word of God and, and proclaiming it, those who who've persecuted God's people for saying that will face eternal judgment. So it, it's good news because the gospel allows us to trust God with that judgment rather than Attempting to avenge this ourselves, rather than attempting to stand in his place and seek vindication, seek vengeance on our own. You know, I think this is something that concerns me about Christianity and Western culture right now, is that I think if we're not careful, we have this tendency to seek our own vindication and to seek to join hands seek our own vengeance against culture rather than trusting that the Lord one day will judge. And my place is to proclaim this word that many might hear and believe. And I think actually in seeking out that vengeance and vindication, we create massive stumbling blocks to the gospel for non-believing people. Um, create massive barriers to, to a gospel hearing because our, our hearts get hungry for vindication. It reminds me Read, read Prince Caspian, you know, Lewis's Prince Caspian. And, and who do we find there? We find this dwarf named uh, Nicobric. And Nicobric is so angry at Miraz, this oppressor, this king who's so evil and wicked against the Narnians, against the animals, against the dwarves. Against the, he's oppressed them. He's driven all the dwarves into hiding, Nicobric included. He's so angry at Miraz, he's willing to do anything to get vengeance. And so he partners with the White Witch. And he says, yeah, you know, the White Witch... She's been bad to the animals, and she's been pretty good to the dwarves, and I'm willing to roll the dice with her if it means getting back at these people. I happen to think there's an awful lot of corollary there, pastorally, for um, Christians in Western culture. We have to be very careful not to, to go down that road, but to instead 
sees that it's good news because the gospel, in Zechariah 5, because the gospel allows us to trust God with this judgment when, when we are wrong, when we're legitimately wrong, we trust God with judgment and vengeance rather than attempting to avenge ourselves. We proclaim the gospel of those who hear might believe. But it's also good news for disappointed people that repentance is not possible because of your ability to follow God. You know, like reading that, that Calvin quote again, how terrible it is to fall into the hands of God for he will punish the ungodly and the wicked until he reduces them to nothing. Man, if my repentance is based on my efforts and my work, that's horrible news. But there's hope here because it's not based on that. The good news here is that that my ability to turn toward Christ, to repent, is made possible not by my word, but by the great mercy of Jesus Christ. There's this curse in Zechariah 5 that goes out to all humanity, because we've all failed to follow God. But listen to how the New Testament describes Jesus' work for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So Christ became a curse. Though, though Christ was innocent, he became a curse for us. Though he was obedient, he became a curse. He became sin, who knew no sin, that because of his work and not my work, we might become his righteousness. At the same time, if we reject him, if we reject that gospel, if we reject that good news, if we try to reshape him in our own image, if we try to reshape the gospel in a way way more in line with my sensibilities, we should know that he's the one who's worthy to hold another scroll. The scroll in Revelation chapter 5. And when he opens it, it brings judgment upon the earth. So we come to the table, knowing the heaviness here, knowing what's at stake, reminding ourselves again of what he has done, that we might have a life characterized by repentance and faith because of the grace of God. And so this here is a meal for believers. It points us back again to the reality of our salvation, the means of our salvation. Body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us that we might have life in Him. If you're a non believer, if you're a skeptic of Christianity, who's here this morning, you're not sure what you believe, we welcome you. Participate in this by observing, asking questions. If you're a believer, if you confess this gospel along with us, we invite you forward.